millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Good evening and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You're with Talk, we're on TV, we're on radio, we're online and of course we're on your smart speaker as well. Coming up, Boris Johnson fights back tears after the tragic, tragic year of 2020 and admits mistakes were made at the COVID inquiry. So Ella Braverman warns Rishi the Tories face electoral oblivion within months unless he gets a grip on migration and it comes as Robert Jenrick resigns as immigration minister. What else could go wrong? And the Ginger Winger's court case uh, is back into his security. Uh, that continues with his lawyers saying he was treated unfairly by the Home Office. Oh dear. Good evening, Britain, and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Things are going. From bad to worse tonight for the Tory government, after a day that included the first session with Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry, which didn't exactly go the way you'd hoped, that was followed by Suella Braverman warning that the party and the government are facing oblivion in a matter of months. And as if that wasn't enough to give Rishi Sunak the collie wobbles, then up popped Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick with a letter of resignation in which he said, I cannot continue due to the strong disagreements on government immigration policy. Let's go back to the beginning of the Wednesday nightmare for the Prime Minister. And let's hear from the former Prime Minister, the man that the COVID inquiry was almost made for, Boris Johnson. He started with an apology. Are those violins you can hear? Uh, how sorry I am for the, the pain and the loss and the suffering sit down. of please, the please stop. COVID Don't victims. Please sit down. Please sit down or I'm afraid you'll have to leave the hearing room. I'm sorry, if you don't sit down, I'm going to ask the ushers to get you to leave. After that outburst from relatives of those who had died uh, in the pandemic, things didn't get an awful lot better. Throughout his testimony, Boris was at times regretful, emotional and stern. He clearly wanted to give the impression that he was concerned with what happened, that he had thought about it and pondered many of the decisions taken. Hugo Keith Casey, the chief inquisitor, didn't give him any chances, though. And at times it seemed as though this whole thing was simply all about trying to humiliate the man in the hot seat. 
something the KC has been doing throughout. But Boris Johnson, as ever, divided the room. Some didn't like his apology. Some thought he was faking it. And as ever, he was the box office attraction. There were crowds outside the hearing who couldn't get in. We'll analyse what he was asked and why China still seems to be getting a free ride from the people asking the questions. And when all that ended, it was the turn of Suella Braverman. If Rishi Sunak thought she wasn't going to go for the jugular, he was wrong. Again, in her first statement since being fired, she said he was wasting time. Three weeks have passed since he promised some emergency legislation to fix the Rwanda situation. She spoke for all Tory MPs when she said, we are running out of time. And she continued in the same vein, did we fight for sovereignty or let our party die? And even as Parliament was examining the details of the legislation that will disapply sections of the Human Rights Act, word started to get out that Immigration Minister Robert Jenrick had resigned. It was another body blow for the current Prime Minister. The big question is, how many more can he take? One shadow cabinet MP was overheard saying, this has got an end of days feeling about it. Tonight, between now and 11pm, I wouldn't be at all surprised if all rats leave the sinking ship. And when it happens, you'll hear it here first. This is the Independent Republican Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones as well, 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost you the national rates. We want to hear from you because I've got quite the crew with me tonight to discuss Big Bojo's blockbuster appearance. Our very own international editor, Isabel Oakshot, plus Talk TV's chief political commentator, Peter Cardwell, and co founder of Us for Them, Molly Kingsley. Well, I think you've had probably one of the busiest days of your career, Isabel, haven't you? I think you've been on every show since uh, since midday or something. I think I've had an easier day than both Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak. Yes, absolutely um, right. But, I mean, I heard you talking to Piers, and I, and I was pleased that you kind of stood up against his rather kind of dismissive tone, which I thought he took about Boris Johnson, because a lot of people are just looking at Boris Johnson and going, it's all his fault, it's all, if it wasn't for him, everything would have been fine. And it's really not about that. Well, they, they also seem to think that he was faking that emotion. Right. And as I've said on a number of our programmes today, you know, I have observed Boris Johnson fairly at fairly close quarters for a decade and a half. Mm. And that wasn't bumptious Boris. That was, a, that was a genuine display of emotion when he talked about the tragic year of 2020. Yeah. And I think what we saw today was something totally other than what Piers Morgan represented there. I don't think that Boris was defaulting to his usual dissembling and lying and so on. Um, I think he was making a genuine effort to acknowledge that mistakes were made. He repeatedly did so, in fairness. And to say that, of course, there are things that could have been done differently. But what he attempted to do, and people will have different views on how successful this was, was set out just the magnitude of the decision Mm. that was on his shoulders as we approached that first national lockdown. And the fact that he was having to weigh so very carefully the terrible consequences, which he already knew, many Mm. of us could already see were coming if you shut down society for long periods. And I think that came across quite powerfully, Mm. actually. Yeah, let me just before I come to to Peter and Molly, uh, let's have another look at what he said about the cabinet responsibility. Can I just say how glad I am to be at this uh, inquiry and uh, how sorry I am for the the pain and the loss and the suffering sit down. of please, the please stop. COVID stop. victims. Please sit down. Please sit down or I'm afraid you'll have to leave the hearing room. I'm sorry, if you don't sit down, I'm going to ask the ushers to get you to leave. Uh, that I understand the feelings of, the, of these 
victims and their families, and I am deeply sorry for the pain and the loss and the suffering of those victims and, and their families. Boris Johnson to what we've seen right. previously. Yeah. I mean, I think the problem is, is that, you know, for Boris Johnson, he clearly feels slightly uncomfortable in these kind of situations, doesn't he? I mean, he's used to being the star of the show. It, it's very much being... hard to me. I don't know what you thought, Mike, but I very much got the sense of sort of being in the headmaster's office, feeling yeah. sort of head slightly bowed, definitely uh, not waffling, not blustering, yeah. actually being contrite yeah. and apparently apologising. He wasn't very fair on him, I yeah. didn't think. I mean, not only did he continually seek to humiliate him, as you said in your introduction, which I think was unreasonable, mm. um, but he also quite often was wrong. I mean, yeah. Hugo Keys wheeled out the wrong statistics yes. on our death, our record relative to other countries. Mm. That's pretty important, actually. You yes. have got that wrong. But I think so, Molly, because we... we I mean, you're a critic of the government and what they did, and, and as we all are, in various different ways. But I think that, you know, um, Isabel's right. That the way the questioning has always been aimed at kind of trying to catch people off guard, trying to catch them out, trying to make out that they were, you know, useless and, and negligent and all of those things, which I think, given the way some people have been talking would suggest that they weren't. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. I thought Boris came out really well, actually. Yeah. And I was, you know, I've been a very harsh critic yes, of him over too. the last few years. And I thought he came out really well. I thought Hugo Keith came off terribly, actually. He got things Friends wrong. You've mentioned the excess yeah. death. Yeah. He also so got... Well, he referred to an infection... I don't know if you heard this, infection mortality rate of 2%, which is about 10 times higher than the actual rate. Right. And he's based... He said that, you know, right at the beginning, that in the excess death point. And that really framed his entire attitude. And I think that speaks really to the fundamental flaw of this mm. inquiry. It is starting from the wrong base point and it is not yeah. asking the key question, did lockdowns work and did it benefit yeah. the huge harm? Right. And I'll come, I'll come back to that, but let's have a look at what Metro are saying uh, in the morning. They've got a front page out, sorry for your loss, Boris Johnson at the COVID inquiry. Uh, they say, Thierry, former PM, apologises for pain and suffering during a tragic, tragic year. Relatives furious, they're standing up to interrupt the apology. I mean, I think, again, you know, as I said at the top, there's an awful lot of questions I'd like to know uh, the answers for about China and about what the international community was doing and what British government was well, doing. Well, Michael Gove got know. shut down, Mike, when that happened, when he yeah. brought up well, the origins first, yeah, of, the actual of lab COVID. Leak, yeah. He was shut down and Hugo uh, Keith, who is, I just find incredibly patronising, saying mm. that's not in the scope of this inquiry. Right. I mean, it matters not. It, it matters not. not who yeah. even talks like that? Yes. Um, really... but, I mean, these bar I'm sick to death of these barristers, to be honest. I mean, everywhere they pop up, you know, yeah. as I was saying um, earlier on today... Barristers used to be a particularly reliable form of kind of, you know, British upper class educated in individual. They're now kind of, you know, an extension of the James O'Brien programme. You know, they're all going on and on <laughs> about Brexit. You know, they're yeah. always talking about how yeah, well, Boris Johnson's I'm, fault for everything. I you fear know. we'll get that tomorrow because we haven't had the examination of whether Brexit is to blame for everything that went wrong. No, they've skipped over that. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, but we've already heard the relatives... I mean, I heard a couple of the relatives saying that, you know, and you wondered, well, what's it going to do with Brexit? They're now hearing that, you know, well, they were just planning for Brexit. And the preparedness <laughs> I mean, that's just nonsense. It's not a story. I, I think we should talk about the role of the relatives here because this is another of my bugbears, yeah. that nobody is denying or denigrating the loss of anybody who, whose loved ones died during the pandemic. But I think the behaviour of those relatives at the inquiry today was reprehensible. Mm. It is not for them to heckle right. the former prime minister. It is not for them to stand up and try to disrupt proceedings. Right. These proceedings have been massively distorted 
by the enormous efforts that have been made to accommodate what their wishes are mm. from the inquiry. And as I've said ad nauseum, this inquiry actually isn't about them. I no. know they might want it to be about right. them, but it isn't about them. It is about what we do differently yes. next time. And unfortunately, the relatives on that side are not the most important Yeah, people. I'm with you. And I mean, it's not a popular uh, view because obviously we're not supposed to be horrible about people who have suffered. But, you know, lots of people have suffered. You could line the place with millions of people who have suffered in one way or another. The children. And the children for that? a start. And, and I, I also don't think these relatives are in any way representative of well, people who lost loved ones. They're not. I mean, we know that. And it is one of the structural problems with the inquiry, that yeah. the nature of the core participants are very weighted towards those who have suffered bereavement due to COVID. And that yeah. is not to downplay that, as Isabel says. But what about those that suffered bereavement due to lockdown? Right. What about the children, as yeah. you say? What about the hospitality industry? Yeah. The whole, you know, why right. aren't these people represented in the same right. way? But even, what I'm saying, Peter, as well, even people who lost their own loved ones are not always the kind of people that want to go and demonstrate at a public inquiry um, and make a nuisance of themselves for no apparent purpose. Well, I, I worked with quite a few victims groups when I worked in government, especially mm. in terms of Northern Ireland. And truth and justice are very, very different things to many different yeah. people. Yeah. Right. There will be people sitting at home who will watch Boris Johnson say, do you know what, fair cop, good for you for apologising. Yes, I'm never going to agree with you. I'm never going to vote for you necessarily. But certainly, you know, that's OK. Yeah. And we'll never know what they think because they won't make their voices heard. Yeah. But of course we do here, and as, as Isabel and Molly says, not to take anything away from what has happened, but there, there are so many people who will feel very, very emotionally attached to this. They'll make their voice heard, and those who shout the loudest will be heard the most. Yeah, exactly right. And, I mean, at the end of the day, when you listen to some of them being interviewed, as they were afterwards outside, saying that they weren't interested in an apology, and then when they said, well, what is it that you want? Well, we want an apology. Well, yeah. you've just had one. You've had one. Um, you don't like that one, so you want a different one. She was contrite. I mean, yeah. I've heard relatives give, give these interviews, and, again, why well, I'm very sorry. It's horrible to have lost mm. anybody... Um, but he was contrite. He did repeatedly admit that he made mistakes mm. in a way that was really quite humiliating for him. Yeah, I think so, because this is how, a bit like Tony Blair in Iraq, I mean, this is how he will be remembered, yeah. probably, um, that, you know, there was a guy who could have been a great prime minister, but for COVID. I think, I think it, just to be totally, and we are being fair to the relatives, by the way, I mm. think, on this panel, but just to, to think about them a little bit more, there are people whose grief has manifested in anger, yeah. and actually to hear an apology... Was was not perhaps what they what they wanted. They did, they want they wanted to hate Boris Johnson, mm. and that helps them yes. in their grief. And some way I've come across this many yeah. times. And, and in a sense, that's okay. Mm. But we just have to put that under context. Does any of this as well touch Rishi Sunak? Because let's not forget, you know, Rishi Sunak likes to everybody to think that he just suddenly became prime minister, like he was born out of a you know a pod in the back garden, and suddenly he was mm. prime minister. You know, he was in that government. He was in that cabinet. He was the chancellor. He was the one that did the eat out to help out. He was the one that did the uh, the furlough scheme. I mean, when is anybody going to ask any questions so, about him? So he is due to give evidence. Next week, I think. Just, just yes. before Christmas. And yeah. I think he's yeah, yeah. going to get quite a hard time yeah. um, because we've seen from all the testimony in this segment of the inquiry a lot of criticism yeah. of Eat Out to Help Out, which Matt Hancock privately called Eat Out to Spread It About, right. which he had taken out of the book that yeah. I wrote with him because he right. didn't want to upset Sunak because Sunak was Prime Minister right. by that point. Um, but, yeah, look... Um, I think that Sunak will come under a lot of pressure because actually what we do know of Rishi Sunak at the time as Chancellor was that he was also pushing back, yeah. um, not 
in my view, quite hard enough. Right. But he was trying to make the case. Well, he was certainly um, letting it be known that that's what he was doing. Yeah. Whether or uh, not no, he was. No, no, he was. He, he was. was yeah. I, I, yeah, that came yeah, out of the evidence yeah. today, actually. To, to be fair, were... he was. But, I mean, there'll be a lot of hostility to that. You know, right. not everybody will agree that he should have been doing that. Mm. So. No, exactly. Because it hasn't been a great day for Rishi Sunak, has it? We had, after Boris, we had sort of Bravo. Something up mildly. Right. Uh, Nightmare Wednesday. I was trying to think of a word that began with W that I could use, but I couldn't think of one. Um, <laughs> worst but, you know, Wednesday. Uh, worst Wednesday is not bad. You might have worse ones to come, though. Mm. Uh, Sir Braverman gave him a, a pretty good shoeing. And then Robert Jenrick resigned. Was that expected? Uh, well, he'd been on resignation watch for some time yeah. and uh, had certainly been thinking about this for a number of days. It's been fascinating, actually, seeing what's happening mm. this evening and the fact that it was this weird situation where there certainly seemed to be some... Uh, rumours that he had resigned, James Cleverly was actually on, uh, was actually at the dispatch box in Parliament and probably knew it was coming, but not that it had happened. It was told right. by a Labour MP that mm. it had happened. But yes, who's going to be immigration minister now? It's a very, very big well, question. Well, who would want to be immigration minister? Well, exactly. My question. <laughs> no, they'll no, always no. find like, someone. It's like the most thankless job. It used to be Northern Ireland Secretary that you didn't it want to It can only get, be someone it? who's got a very safe seat and I'm not sure yes. there are many safe seats well, left indeed. at this point. And I mean, what about the the, the, sort of the knock-on effect? Will there be others now on Robert Jenrick's side who think, a lot of people well, you know what, maybe I'll just go now? A lot of people on Resignation Watch, I think, um, especially on the right of the party. I mean, the fact is that the attempt by Downing Street mm. is to get a solution to this Rwanda uh, bill that suits everybody, and that's impossible. We've had the treaty, uh, clearly, from I have uh, Robert Jenrick's uh, resignation letter in front of me, and he is essentially talking about the ECHR. He says, one of the great advantages of our unwritten constitution is the unfettered power of our sovereign parliament to create law, and that is a power we must take full advantage of. The government has a responsibility to place our vital national interests above highly contested interpretations of international law. That is much further than Rishi Sunak will go. That is much further, and much further than some Tory MPs want him to go. Absolutely. But it's Uh, where the country wants him to go. Well, exactly. But let's have a look at um, uh, James Cleverley and how... He said that this had happened. The Home Office Safeguarding Minister has confirmed on on air that the Immigration Minister has resigned. Can the Home Secretary confirm that and did he know about it? Uh, uh, Mr Deputy Speaker, that that, that has been confirmed. Of course, I speak uh, with the ministers in the uh, department uh, uh, regularly, but ultimately the questions at this the question of this session should be about the bill rather than about individuals in the House. Absolutely caught on Yeah, of course. There. Molly, I mean, right the question should be definitely about the bill, not the fact that the bloke behind the bill, or at least one <laughs> yeah. of them, uh, is no longer you doing the job. should have been sitting beside him. I know. Oh, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It is. It's an interesting um, example, actually, of how quickly government can act to legislate when, yes. when the will is When out. they want to. Yeah. Well, we saw that during COVID as well, but also, yeah, isn't it interesting... could have been a bit quicker, actually. How quickly... I know, Peter, well. you don't agree with me that there'll be any more resignations tonight, and I'm not saying I think there will be. I just wouldn't be surprised if there Yeah, yeah I wouldn't be surprised um, either. But... Or certainly tomorrow. Um, but it can unravel this whole thing quite quickly, can't it? So I feel things are extremely febrile mm. and that the government is in a pretty fragile position. Yeah. But long and the short of it is only the Prime Minister can accelerate the timetable for an election. So mm. he's still got that in his gift. And it feels to me vanishingly unlikely that he will actually, in the short order, be literally ousted as Prime Minister. Yeah. I mean, there's no. I don't think anyone has got the appetite for yet another leadership I certainly election. don't. I mean, come on. <laughs> Who's that woman who so, doesn't want so, another election? So where does this go? I mean, the question is, can he stagger on with a, a complete collapse of discipline within the party for another year? He also yeah. has a very good... See, I don't think he can. I don't I, think I he think can. It, I think it hits the buffers way before May. 
I think. But he also has a good, feels that way. He has a good card in his pack to play, which is if he has someone within government who wants, who's about to resign, he can say, well, do you know what? We have a vacancy for immigration minister. Why don't you become immigration minister? You sit around the cabinet table, which you may not be doing at the moment, and you can implement this policy. Yes. And you can be the owner of it. Right. It'll be a mar- 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 you can mar- be mar- It's not going to save the day. It's not going to save fancy, the day. You know, has you fancied a way day to Kigali? You know, we've sent three home secretaries. Maybe time for another immigration ministry. Yeah, oh, unbelievable. Well, listen, uh, stay with us, and we've got lots more of this and loads more to come because uh, the whole place feels like it's in complete and utter chaos. I'm not just talking about this show. Uh, you're watching <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, and you better stay watching uh, because we're going to do more on the immigration minister who has quit. And Suella Bravman, of course, as well. Uh, she's been back in the Commons giving the managed sector a big piece of her mind. We'll hear all about it coming next. As we were just discussing, Rishi Sunak's front bench has suffered yet another blow. Robert Jenrick has quit as immigration minister in a spat over the Rwanda plan, or lack of it. And for context, Suella Braverman, the Home Secretary, uh, he fired last month, dialed up the drama in her statement to the Commons earlier. It's really not been a good day for Rishi. All of this, Madam Deputy Speaker, comes down to a simple question. Who governs Britain? Where does ultimate authority for the UK lie? Is it with the British people and their elected representatives? Or is it in the vague, shifting and unaccountable concept of international law? On Monday, Madam Deputy Speaker, the Prime Minister announced measures that start to better reflect public frustration on legal migration. He can now follow that up with a bill that reflects public fury on illegal migration and actually stop the boats. Finally, Madam Deputy Speaker, it is now or never. I feel like bursting into song. Joining us now to discuss this, we've got the Telegraph columnist and parliamentary sketchwriter Madeline Grant, Director of Communications for the Henry Jackson Society, Megan Gittos, and journalist Stephen Edgington from the Telegraph as well. Thanks to all of you for coming in. Um, who is running the country? I'd quite like to know the answer to that. We now don't have an immigration minister, um, even as, you know, immigration is the top of the agenda for everything. What's going on? Absolute chaos, as <laughs> usual. Just another day in the, in the Conservative Party. Yes. I mean, yeah, this is this is, is very, very, very chaotic and, and just looks terrible because, you know, when this position is filled and even if they are able to have some success, if, if by some miracle they were able to meet some of the objections to the, to the Rwanda plan yeah. and this new piece of legislation, even if that is carried off, there is just always this, this whiff of, of, of chaos yeah. and acrimony yeah. uh, emanating from the Conservative mm. Party. I mean, they seem to have taken a rather poor idea and sort of watered it down. You know, the legislation that they're seemingly trying to push through is full of exceptions and, you know, people being sent back to Britain after being sent to Rwanda. I mean, it's all over the place, isn't it? Yeah, um... I can't remember which one, but an MP talking on Times Radio earlier that said uh, it's been watered down because they do think it's most likely to pass and they can't risk losing Rwanda on their side of the right. deal. But I think Robert Jenner... Well, then it won't be any good, though, will it, if it's watered down? I just don't think the plans... Personally, I don't think it's very good anyway. Right. It's the watered-down immigration plan as it is. It's not actually going to be responsible for an awful lot of migrants for how much it's actually going to cost. Um, Robert Jenner resigning it is yeah it's they need to have a stronger stomach this issue isn't going away no. and if they only have the rwanda plan then 
what's their plan for the other 35,000 well, small boats exactly. every year that aren't going to be going Well, that's the under. problem, Steve, isn't it? I mean, we've got this government who seemingly are, are obsessed with making something happen in Rwanda. I don't sure they even know what that something is. And even if it does work, there are only going to be a few hundred people going there and half of them apparently will come back. Well, I think the problem that Rishi has is that he staked his entire political reputation on so-called stopping the boats. Yeah. This was his part of his sort of five pledges that he made when he first became prime minister. And he's clearly failed to do that. And I mm. think that this legislation, clearly many Conservative MPs feel that it doesn't go far enough. There are some Conservative MPs, of course, who are concerned about breaking so-called international law. And that's the reason that Rishi Sunak and James Cleverley can't go further is because of these concerns from those Conservative MPs on the left of the party who say that we must ab uh, abide by uh, international right. law and regulations. But I think, you know, a common sense approach would see us stopping the boats and doing whatever it yeah. takes, as Robert Jenrick said. And he's not actually, uh, historically, he hasn't been seen as a very right-wing Conservative MP. He's been sort of more moderate, very much a supporter of Rishi Sunak, a loyalist. So it really is extraordinary that he has resigned today. So Ella Braverman, you could argue, maybe she's uh, lining us up, up for a leadership contest mm. next year. But Robert Jenrick, I mean, this is pretty extraordinary stuff. It really is. I mean, David Cameron's now on the right of the Conservative Party, isn't he, compared to some of these MPs at the back benches who were saying, we mustn't break international law. Mm. I mean, do they not know what their constituents think? Do they not want to know? Yeah. And also, when, you know, David Cameron was Prime Minister of this country, on occasion we did ignore pronouncements yeah. from the, the ECHR uh, on things like prisoner voting rights. Right. So, you know, it has been done. Mm. And there's plenty of other countries in Europe, for instance, that you know, will, their judges will take a much looser view of these pronouncements and will sometimes ignore it when it suits them. Denmark has done this before and so have many other countries. Right. So it's not beyond the, the, the wit of man. I think it, what it needs is a political will yeah. that is, is really, really lacking. But I think Stephen is very right to raise that point about how there are, you know, these two co cohorts of MPs that want totally different things. Mm. In the chamber, as Suella Braverman was delivering her statement, that was very obvious. Yes. You know, there were quite a few MPs nodding vigorously as she spoke, and also a, a, quite a large number who were looking pretty disgusted, mm. scoffing and um, shaking their heads. Yeah. Well, I, I think... mean, how you find a, a policy platform that can bridge that, right. that divide is going to be very, very difficult. Because I couldn't work out when she said that they were facing electoral oblivion <laughs> and there was a sort of a cheer that went up. I was like, is that coming from the Tories oh. or the Labour parties? I don't know. Yeah. You can't but tell. Also, you. Us out of our misery. Right. I found it quite amusing that she said that because... I did want to say, open your eyes. That's coming. That oblivion right. and <laughs> oblivion right. is happening. The people that the two hundred seats that they're predicting the Tories are going to remain, or about one hundred and ninety, mm. they're relatively safe. So yeah. the oblivion that's going to happen has already been secured. Right. I think that yeah, the point you make about the party being really split, it's so terribly split and I just think they need to get the election out of the way now because they're not going to find unity at this stage. No. This issue's not going away. It's just going to get worse, isn't it? It's getting going to get worse for every country. This is an election winner or loser right. in every country. In like but that's the interesting thing because in Europe, Steve, there's, there's, there's sort of countries which are, had been relatively lax about immigration like France, like Italy, like Germany and they're all kind of turning and they're all going, we can't keep this this up. We can't allow all these people. They've suddenly reinvented a border, I'm told, between France and Italy. Um, Germany has said they're not taking any more refugees coming from Italy. Um, and the Italians are going, you know, we can't keep taking all these refugees to North Africa. So, you know, Britain, once again, is kind of standing alone, but in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. I think the difference between Britain and many countries on the continent 
is that there are strong populist right-wing parties in Europe yeah. that are really applying pressure to the mainstream governments and mm. parties of those countries. Whereas, unfortunately, in Britain, there is, obviously, we've got the Reform Party, but I think to, uh, they're pretty weak if you compare them to Gert yeah. Wilders in, in the Netherlands, for right. example, his election recently in Sweden, in Germany, and in France, you mentioned Le Pen is doing very well in the mm. opinion polls. So I think there's a lot of pressure on those governments to tackle the, this issue, and that's not uh, the same in the UK at the moment. And if you look at French, let's say, if you look at uh, legal migration, compare legal migration mm. to France and Britain, France has around 200,000 just, just below we have 745,000. Yeah. It's absolutely extraordinary. And the Conservatives want to pretend that this is just an inevitable thing, that we must have almost a million yeah. people coming to this country this, every year. We I, do not need to do no. this. Other European countries are bigger, France mm. is bigger than us, and they take far, far yeah. less people. Well, back in 2019, we were only taking 200,000, you know, and they managed to sort of, you know, more than triple it since they got into office, having said that we're going to get it down. So there's something going on, it seems to me, um, whether it's been run by the Treasury, whether it's people who think that they, because they're running universities, they should bring in all these students because that's where the money is. I mean, there's obviously multiple reasons why yeah. immigration is a problem. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, there's many different areas. Mm. Universities is one. And actually, under it was Boris Johnson who really opened, opened the floodgates when yeah. it came to that. And actually, in Rishi Sunak's defence, he has now changed the rules that prevent people from bringing in their dependents, yeah, right. which I'm sure most people weren't even aware no, was possible. No, I think yeah, this year was the first time I worked when that I, out. When I went to university, I didn't bring my, half my family with me. No, you know, it's, it's you went clearly, to get away from them, didn't you? Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, they, were, they were actually... They were I don't mean your particular quite, family, but, yes. you know, I mean, I went to... Yeah, I was, the first thing you do is you go and live away from home for mm -hmm. the first time. Um, and if it's a different country, you still don't yeah. take people with you. Yeah, there are lots of universities that are not of a very high academic right. standard that have these um, campuses in London, mm. even if they are based elsewhere in the UK. And these have basically become places where, to, to, to bring up the numbers, um, people can go with very little in the way of academic yeah. credentials. And then all they have to do is work for a few years in the UK and yeah. they can qualify for a visa. Right. Um, you know, it's, there, there's all sorts of, of routes. Of and routes many of them are now, because we were told this, I think, when the figures came out just the other day, one of the reasons why it's as high as it is is that more people are staying on after they finish their course, yeah. you know, and, and, and they're given permission to stay for two, sometimes three years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they are. Um, it's, it all came as a surprise to me, especially the dependence part of it. But I think we've got to get to grips of the numbers. That's obvious. Um, it is, as you say, uh, well, the number says it's nearly a million a year. And that is... So by the time we finish talking about the Rwanda plan, we're all already at 500,000. Right. And there's a place for immigration and it's so beneficial to society, especially putting people in jobs in public services. But... But the this kind is, of immigration we've insane. got... Yeah, but this I think that's the trouble is, is that, you know, people this say that as though it's all good. But this kind of immigration isn't all good. You know, and I've lived in London, was born in London a very long time ago. Um, and it's a very different city now. It's completely different. And so yeah. the kind of immigration that's happening, is, I would argue, is not actually beneficial at all. Not on this level, not when there's no integration no. strategy. No, there's no strategy at all in social cohesion, integration. No. And at these numbers, it's just we're constantly doing the same thing, expecting a different mm. result. And it's just, there's just such a stretch on anything that people rely on, school, housing, and if you don't have an infrastructure strategy, social cohesion strategy, and integration strategy, then we can't be shocked that this is the result of things. Yeah, exactly. I would say even if you have a good strategy, 
Historically, there aren't many countries around the world that have successfully integrated that many people in no. just a, a short space of time. No, you're right. It's very, very difficult to right. do. You're more likely to achieve it if you keep the numbers at a manageable mm. level that the population of the country is actually comfortable right. with. And it is a world problem, isn't it? I mean, I've mentioned this several times, that over in America, they've got a massive illegal migration problem, and there are people being flown to Central America from Africa to then enter America illegally um, in Tijuana, which is incredible. There's, I mean, it's such a business now. Well, unfortunately, when you start importing people from uh, places where there are significant ethnic conflicts mm. and their cultures are completely... Uh, different and their values are completely different to those in Western countries, then you import their problems with them. And I think, as you rightly mentioned, in America uh, and Britain and all across Western Europe, we've seen uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of people from Africa and Asia coming yeah. to these countries and causing all sorts of issues for the local people, mm. not just e in economic terms. And I think, you know, Britain in the 1990s had a net migration of 50,000 a year and we survived just okay. Yeah, yeah. Recently, Unfortunately, big businesses have over-relied on cheap labour from all around the world. And I think we need to get off that, that sort yeah. of, um, yeah. you know, it's, drug. It's, it's a it sort of addiction yes. that we need yes. to break, isn't it? That's it's, the thing. It's, it's politicians also very much at fault here because let's say that you have a problem, say, in the social care sector or in the NHS or in universities which are struggling for funding. In the short term, it makes a lot of sense for departments yeah. to lobby for these kinds of numbers. And perhaps financially, it might, make, it might be the right decision in the short term. However, it's very much a sticking plaster, plaster solution because if you depend on, you know, cheap labour for social care. You haven't got to the bottom of, of, of the, sh the shortage in UK workers. And one day those people who are mm. working in social care, will, one day, will they will one day require their own social mm. care and that will require more migrants to pay for their needs. Yeah, it really is. It's a, it's a hiding to nothing. But thank you, guys. I know we're going to have you back later on uh, to have a look at the papers of what's going on there. Uh, but this problem is not going away. We've been highlighting it for a very long time here at the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stay right where you are because Prince Harry's battle to win back his security status in the UK is still going on. And we've got the numbers on how many copies of Endgame Omid Scobie uh, sold. I've got a spoiler alert for you. It's not very many. <laughs> Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham as Prince Harry battles on against the Home Office over whether he should be allowed to pay for his own police protection. I'm afraid there's bad news for his mate, Omid Scobie, because his book, yes, you've guessed it, is an absolute flop. And here to discuss the latest and all the other royal stories, we've got Kinsey Schofield live from Los Angeles. Kinsey, welcome. Hi, yeah, Omid. I'm sure Omid is just infuriated after that... PR high that he got to enjoy that first week after Endgame came out. Uh, I can't imagine what it's like. I'd love to be a fly on the room of in his Beverly Hills hotel room right now, <laughs> hearing uh, what he's saying and, and how he's handling all of this. Yes, because I don't know whether you get the sort of daily call from the uh, the publishers to say how well things are going. And we sold another 50,000 today, so uh, everybody's happy. You'll be able to buy that motorhome you've always longed for to tour around Europe and meet all your fans. I guess he's not getting those calls, I'm afraid. I don't know if it's a motorhome he's after as much as it's a facelift, but I understand what you're saying. <laughs> yes, absolutely right. Um, here's the thing, though. Um, it's not that surprising, but perhaps more surprising um, is the reaction to not just the book itself, but to, um, you know, the accidental naming uh, of the two, royal mem two members of the royal family who were supposed to have said something that might have been considered slightly racist. I mean, 
with all of that hype and with all of the conversations around it, the fact that hardly anybody wants to read this book is, is pretty awful for him. Mike, I think that it's a reflection of not only people, people's disdain for Omid Scobie, but I think it's a reflection of where people are at on the Harry and Meghan story. Yes. Years ago, specifically Americans, wanted to eat up every ounce of information that they could get on Harry and Meghan's big escape. There were Lifetime movies made about it. There were, you know, all sorts of, um, you know, books written about it. And Omid had the inside scoop. So, of course, we're going to assume Endgame is going to have even greater details. Uh, however, nobody went out to buy the book. So I think it says to, to you, I think it says to me that, that interest is waning mm. when it comes to the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They're over their victimhood. And I think that they're over their love story. And that's one of the reasons people are really upset over Harry fighting to have his security paid for. Because in this instance, again, he says he's being treated unfairly. And another way for Harry to cry wolf, another way for Harry to cry victim. Yeah. And I think not just in, in the US of A, but also back here, people are fed up with it, you know, because their lives are an awful lot better than most people's lives. Their house is a lot bigger. Um, you know, their car is a lot better. Their private jets are a lot more expensive than the way most people travel around the world. And, you know, most people are going, you've got nothing to complain about. What's wrong with you? And they're so stuck in the past. Uh, you know, we are looking to try to figure out how to improve our lives day to day. And, and the, I, I watch your show often listening to you talk about the mig migrant crisis, the yeah. cost of living, he heating or eating. Those are real world problems. And we uh, as regular people are figuring out how to navigate this world in some really tough circumstances. Mm. While Harry and Meghan seem so fixated on things that happened years ago, they need to move on. You're right. right. They need to acknowledge their blessings and they need to, to focus on the future because this chapter's closed. People it, are done. People don't care anymore. Yeah, it really is. And also, um, no doubt, Meghan will have been infuriated by that picture that went out last night. Uh, it was on the paper's uh, front pages this morning uh, of, you know, the new Fab Four, which is basically King Charles, his wife, the Queen Camilla, um, and Prince William and Kate. Okay, well, what I thought you were referencing was the picture of Megan's, Megan's paparazzi shot where she's covered in lint. But yes, in comparison, <laughs> this picture is a knockout. This is the Christmas card you want to get in the mail, right? Yeah. It's absolutely stunning, and this shows unity, strength, and leadership. Uh, this will upset Harry and Megan because they've always talked about how excluded they felt. And not only does this picture show unity and strength, it shows wholeness it's complete it's not missing anything mm. that no. i look at that picture and i feel comfort in that leadership yes exactly right and i'm i'm, I'm going to let you now talk about the picture of uh, of, of megan but she was supposedly out and about looking happy um supposedly but she always looks happy considering she's always moaning about how terrible everything is she always has a smile on her face doesn't she she does i loved the the headline i think it was from daily mail that she was 
it was an olive branch that she was wearing a 5,000 pound tennis bracelet from Prince Charles. She was probably afraid that the housekeeper was going to take it. You know, (laughs) she probably doesn't leave the house without it. It's a, it's an expensive tennis bracelet. I I highly doubt that was an olive branch to the King. No. Um, But yeah, I think if I were in her shoes, I would have walked out looking like a million bucks if I knew all eyes were going to be on me after Omid Scobie's book. Mm. Well, that's the thing. She is worth a million bucks or probably several a million bucks. I mean, he's got a trust fund of 30 million quid that he was left by his mother. Uh, So when he was making all those complaints about his father last year, two years ago, that, you know, he practically cut me off and left me with nothing. I mean, it was just all absolute and utter rubbish, right? But here's the funny thing. Um, Only recently they were up in Canada you know, sort of reinventing themselves, watching ice hockey games, dropping pucks, talking about, uh, you know, new projects in the pipeline. Has anything else been said about these new projects? No, but what I will say about not only the the ice hockey game, which we know that the Queen Elizabeth II had done a very similar engagement at that exact spot. Um, We also had Prince Harry and Meghan a few weeks ago do that surprise engagement at the gym in San Diego, California, which is a little bit south of here. I think that they are keeping their mouth shut a little bit more and trying to recreate those royal moments to trick Americans into thinking that they are still the Americans, are the royals that, you know, kind of the shiny royals that Americans were interested in. Because at this point, they look like C-list reality stars. And Dior's not going to work with that. The big brands that Meghan would like to attract are, they are not attracted to that kind of the drama that surrounds Harry and Meghan. Well, that's right. And I'm told that he was um, asking for a correction for a piece in page six of the New York Post about a wedding uh, that they must have said he wasn't invited to, right? That's right. These these headlines are all over the place, that Harry and Meghan have not been invited to the wedding of the century. It's Archie's godfather. How could they be excluded? Right. And uh, a source close to Harry wanted the page six to make sure that everyone knew that Harry is the one that actually decided to RSVP no because he didn't want to make things awkward for the king, queen, and prince and princess of Wales. Um, you know, I've also seen some sources say that those kinds of big wig weddings, those kinds of once-in-a-lifetime events, don't send save-the-date cards. Like, that's a very common thing to do. So I'll have to put on my investigation hat and find out if anybody else got an RSVP save-the-date, very American type of piece of, uh, piece of mail. Um, but... Interesting that Harry would want to make sure we all know that that's not true. However, absolute silence when it comes to Omid's game and Omid accidentally naming the alleged royal racists. Yes, no, of course, that's what we would expect. A bit of hypocrisy, uh, no less. Kinsey, great to see you. Thank you very much indeed. Kinsey Schofield there reporting into us from uh, Hollywood, California. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham. Now, pick up your phones because I'll be taking your calls coming next. 0344 499 1,000. And I'll also tell you why Boris Johnson is being treated unfairly by that pointless COVID inquiry. Welcome back. You're watching The Independent Republican, Mike Graham, right here on Talk TV. Now, it's time for Taking the Mic. It was all so predictable, wasn't it? It was set up to be the altar on which Boris Johnson would be sacrificed by the many and multitudinous voices that detest him for all sorts of reasons, many of them just because of Brexit. When the former Prime Minister sat down and vowed to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, he was clearly determined to do so. 
When he appeared to become emotional about his memories of 2020, I believe that was as genuine a moment as you will ever see from a politician. And when he apologised for what happened, there could be no doubt that he meant it, despite the protestations of some families of those who died who later said they weren't interested in hearing it. I've previously called for an end to the COVID inquiry because it seems to be serving absolutely no purpose. I've always thought that it was set up in order to punish and humiliate Boris Johnson because so many people have an axe to grind against him. And so many of those people are themselves steeped in tribal politics. I mean, who could be surprised that the chief of those people damning Boris was Alistair Campbell, the former Tory Tony Blair spin doctor who has a few skeletons in his closet about Iraq, amongst many other things. The truth is that what we should be doing is finding out why China allowed a killer virus to escape from a laboratory, knowing what the effects of it would be. Why the World Health Organization declared that COVID would not affect humans, would not jump species, and was nothing to worry about. There will always be those who wanted to lock down harder, faster and longer. I'm not one of them. But let us not forget, COVID was not caused by Boris Johnson. It was not spread by Boris Johnson. And he did not kill anyone. If you want someone to blame, how about China, where COVID was not only made, but where it was fired out of a gun to spread all over the world. At the very least, we should send him the bill. Now, lots of you have been getting in touch, so let's start uh, hearing from some of you. We've got Roger in Manchester wants to talk about the madness of the migration business. Roger, a very good evening to you. Good evening, Graham. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Very nice to hear from you. Thank you very much indeed. What do you want to say? Um, I think really that our government seem to somewhat be a law on themselves. Mm. Um, I'll explain. Uh, relatively recently, the energy bill gained royal ascension. And it was described by one MP as being a Christmas tree of policies which mm. the government can choose as and when they want to implement them. Yeah. Uh, for example, I mean, I actually tried to read it. It's all in legalese and it's, you can't get rid of understand it. But some people have who understand that sort of language. Mm. And they pointed out that this new energy bill will allow the government, when they want to, to force off what? To in turn force energy companies to forcibly fit smart, fit smart meters right. to our homes, whether we like them or not. Yes. Now, they, like, they like doing stuff like that, don't they? Well, yeah, but that's an indication of the government doing what they want, mm. irrespective of what's best for the people, yeah. um, forcing their policies and their wishes on this. And also erosion of our rights, freedoms, right. you know, the, the privacy. Um, and as with this, as recently been indicated with this um, immigration policy, mm. you know, they, they sort of seem to think they can do what they want. Yeah. Um, yes, I think it probably could be the downfall of the government, but I don't think Labour will be, be any better. I don't think there will be any better either, Roger. Listen, thank you for your call. I think that's the trouble. Once people have been in for as long as they've been in, they genuinely think they can get away with basically anything they want without asking. Uh, David's in Yorkshire. Hi, David. Hi, Mike. How are you doing, sir? All right. Good man. What well, do you want to say? Well, I'm listening to Jeremy Vine. Yeah. This programme. Right. What are we doing that for? A real, a real clangor dropped over right. immigration. Yes. There's, there's a, a chap there who has four care homes, and he's saying that, he said, how do you think about this new bill that will go through? Uh. He says, well, I won't be able to recruit any staff. Right. And he made the mistake by saying, they'll all go to Australia and uh, Canada. Right. Well, my daughter's in Australia. It took her two years to get in. She's a management accountant. Right. You've got to have money in the bank, yeah. and you don't get any benefits for two years. Right. And you have to so, be going to get some kind of job, presumably, don't you? Yeah, it carries on. Right. Jeremy and this chap from Cairo. Anyway, somebody put a spanner in the works. They rang him. They right. said, out of 750,000 people, are you telling me you can't get any care workers out of that? Right. There was no good one, there. 
Yeah, absolutely sure, right. It's ridiculous. That's a very good point. Let's talk to John in Newcastle. He wants to talk about veterans. Hi, John. Oh, hello. Uh, before I do that, I'm just talking about immigration, as you've seen it. Yes. I cannot believe this government. I read, in my decades gone by, and that's been a few, I've never known a government like this. No. In fact, I've never known a parliament like this. Uh, a lot of our immigrants have come from France. Yeah. France is not a war-torn country. No. Then people who are not in any danger any more than they would be if they were here. No. So why couldn't we send them back? It's a gutless government and a gutless parliament. And um, I can only hope that when the election comes on, I'll certainly not be voting Conservative, Labour no. and, 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 and Liberal. I don't uh, think so. I think, I think I think Sarah Braverman's right, isn't she? Um, they're going to face electoral oblivion and they could be out for a very, very long time indeed. Uh, Listen, well, I would like to think it. I would like to think of it with yeah. Labour as well, because they've been the opposition in years gone by, right. decades gone by, and they've left in a mess every time as well. Oh, they have. And understand. they've been a pretty useless opposition as well. Yeah. Under Jeremy Corbyn, they didn't really have any ideas whatsoever about anything yeah. at all. But listen, thanks very much indeed but for your call. Uh, we've got to run. Uh, we've got to run. Come back to me another time. We're watching the Independent Republic of Mike Grant. Keep watching, though, because I've got a fantastic second out for you. Of course, Donald Trump's former aide will tell us whether Joe Biden can stop Trump from winning a second term. And we'll find out what tactics Israel plans to use to flush Hamas out of their terrible tunnels. See you after this. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 
Good evening. You're watching the Independent Republican Mike Graham on talk. We're on TV, we're on radio, we're online, and of course on your smart speaker as well. Tonight, pictures emerge showing Israeli troops setting pumps uh, to the sea uh, as they allegedly look to flood Hamas's tunnel network. Lord Cameron meets with the US House Speaker on his first visit to the States since becoming Foreign Secretary. And could David Attenborough get the axe? Planet Earth is at risk of getting the chop through BBC cutbacks. The horrors. Now, don't forget, you can get in touch with the show on all the socials at Talk TV and on the phones, 0344 499 1000. Calls uh, will cost the national rate and will fit loads of them in. Uh, but how about this? We're always hearing about the dangers of social media, getting addicted, staying up all night, believing everything you see, revenge porn and even Hamas propaganda. But one thing you do not really hear much about is what people, particularly younger people, are actually interested in looking at. And surprise, surprise, it's definitely not what you might have expected. TikTok has just revealed its top trends for 2023. And if this is what's going on out there, I think we should be a bit more worried about the adult state of the brains of our youth. Because while Parliament and US government have banned the China-based app from their buildings, they might be relieved to know there isn't much sedition or treason going on. Among the biggest and most watched things by TikTokers this week, uh, this year rather, were yearbook photo booth, which kind of speaks for itself, a series of passport-style pictures around the world. But more surprisingly, 2.4 billion people viewed things to do with the Roman Empire. I mean, I don't know, me neither. And something called Date Bark, which had 24.5 billion views. Don't worry, it's apparently some kind of chocolate cake recipe. Who knew? And if you can't understand your very own teenager, just mention Bombastic Side Eye. You'll never figure out what it is, but they might just think you're cool, along with the other 2.3 billion views that it's had. The good news is that your kids do care about the future, though. The biggest and most popular creation on TikTok is the aged filter, where they can see what they'll look like when they get older. That's been used an incredible 24.6 million times. And my producer thought it might be funny to use it on me. But here's a warning for you. Uh, if you never looked at TikTok, just leave it that way. You should be better off without it. I mean, look at that. That's horrendous, isn't it? In fact... The worry I've got, really, is apart from the white hair, I look pretty much the same, which is slightly concerning. Uh, coming up later on uh, in the show, we'll be bringing you a first look at tomorrow's front pages. Um, but before anyone else, we've got an exclusive look at the Sun newspaper. And I'm delighted to say that uh, we are, it would seem, on royal stories anyway, on the same page with Piers Morgan, uncensored. His column is in the Sun, uh, and he's got that picture I was talking to Kinsey Schofield about um, of the royal family, the king and queen Camilla, out last night, with Prince William uh, and his wife, Kate. He calls them the A-team. And down the bottom of the page, guess who? Harry and Meghan, the C-team. And he basically says, uh, as a photographic example of soft power, it was hard to beat. As Kinsey Schofield said, basically, um, it's the Christmas card that everybody wants to get from the royal family. So Piers Morgan's column in The Sun tomorrow. We'll bring you uh, what else is going on on The Sun front page and all the other front pages as well. Um, I'm coming up a little bit later on in the show uh, when my panel returns. But for right now, uh, let's go to the Middle East because images have emerged appearing to show Israeli forces preparing to flood the labyrinth of tunnels used by Hamas under the Gaza Strip with seawater. Israel is said to have completed installing at least five pumps about a mile north uh, of the Al-Shati refugee camp that could move thousands of cubic metres of water per hour, meaning they could flood the 300-mile network of tunnels within weeks. To discuss this, I'm joined by a professor of politics at the University of Buckingham, 
Eric Kaufman. Eric, good to see you. Thanks good very much indeed. Um, the big worry, I suppose, for this plan, which, which is pretty um, elaborate and, and, and pretty complicated, I suppose, is it really depends on what's in the tunnels. And some people think maybe some of the hostages might be in the tunnels. Well, um, if, certainly if you're Hamas, that's probably the card you want to try and right. play to uh, prevent um, the IDF from doing that. Yeah. Um, I presume brains much much sharper than, than, I, than mine who, who have thought about this stuff have figured out that might be an effective way to put these tunnels out of action. Of course, this is one of the reasons for the invasion is, be, is to sort of disarm or mm. to, to remove the effectiveness of this uh, network, which helps Hamas to attack Israel. Yes, exactly right. And it also helps them to hide all sorts of things and, and store all kinds of things as well. Because I was talking to someone the other day who said that there's a belief amongst Israeli intelligence that actually there is a, a, a network of tunnels which is about 300 miles long, but there might be a further network one level below the tunnels that they know about. Wow. Uh, well, it just, I mean, in a way, this sort of gets to this narrative of the idea that Hamas has been building up this mm. infrastructure, has been using aid money and other funds, channeling it towards creating a, yeah, I mean, a sort of network that would allow them to attack Israel. And mm. so this, uh, this should prompt a rethink about uh, exactly what, what we're doing uh, in Gaza, mm. what the end game is, and, and really you know, what kind of an honest broker we're dealing with. Yes, exactly. Because, I mean, the problem as well for Israel is that it's a very tough thing to do to break up a terrorist network because, you know, one of the things that's said politically by many um, Israeli government officials, and Piers Morgan had the Israeli ambassador in this evening, um, is that, you know, they know that there's an awful lot of people in, in Palestine, whether it's in the West Bank or in Gaza, who are pretty, uh, shall we say, sympathetic to the Hamas cause, you know, and it's not simply that they all hate Hamas and they'd like to see the, 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 the Israelis get rid of them. Many people there actually are rather happy that Hamas are there. Um, and they're not suddenly going to just think differently if Hamas are supposedly destroyed. Well, that's right. I mean, this is the dilemma. Yes, you're right, because if you look at the opinion, the surveys that I've seen of the Gaza population would show sort of 70, 80% mm. support right. uh, for Hamas and its actions. Uh, so yeah, there is a lot of popular support. Um, it's always a tricky thing, you know. Do if you attack terrorists and you have uh, casualties, does that actually sort of create new recruits, mm. or is it a small cell, self-contained, which can be defeated? Right. We've seen examples, you know, in the Middle East, Al Qaeda in Saudi Arabia was defeated as a network uh, and smashed militarily. But in other cases, Afghanistan and Iraq, we've seen that this hasn't worked. Right. And so it's just. I think it's unrealistic to expect that support for this is going to somehow dry up just because Israel takes out the network. Uh, I guess a lot of it will depend on how self-contained that network is. Is it just like the IRA, for example, you had provisional IRA families. It was a tight network. You could actually try and get those people arrested and, and shut it down. Right. But in a situation where it's very fluid and people are moving into and out of Hamas, that's much harder. It is. And I mean, the thing with the IRA was, was that in the end, it was resolved politically, no matter what happened. I mean, there were plenty of um, people who would tell you there were British Army death squads and that there was, you know, the shoot-to-kill shoot policies and all of that. But none of that actually won the war, if you want to call it that. It was not until they sat down uh, with Sinn Féin, as it were, uh, that the IRA sort of finally gave up. Yeah, and I think it, it also, I mean, there was a political wing, uh, you know, Sinn Féin, which... Yeah. When the IRA did bombing and shooting, Sinn Féin's poll numbers dropped. Right. 
eventually that meant that the political wing, the demo democratic mm. wing, was able to pressure the military wing not to be so belligerent. Yeah. I don't know if that relationship exists because there's no democracy. There's no Hamas political wing, is there? They don't need to win an election. Right. They've got power for life. And right. so, you know, if they conduct raids and it hits their poll ratings, which I'm not sure it would, mm. but we don't even know whether that's possible because it's not a democracy. Whereas in Ireland, Northern Ireland, you had elections and that could provide some kind of discipline to keep the violence in yeah. check. Well, this is the problem, isn't it? Because some of the um, uh, scenes that we've witnessed around the world, whether they're in American universities or whether they're in um, the streets of London, you know, there's an awful lot of pro-Palestinian um, enthusiasm, shall we say, out there. And much of it does cross over into some of the things Hamas have done. You know, not all of it is peaceful. Not all of it is, you know, let's have some kind of two-state solution. Quite a lot of it uh, is pretty awful. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, you've got a mixture of your progressive left, radical mm. left elements with more Islamist elements yeah. or, or pro-Arab elements coming together, uh, at least in Western settings. You see that? I mean, I don't know if you, you saw the uh, hearing, the congressional hearings with... Yes. Uh, with well, the... I'm hoping we're going to play a couple of those. Oh, okay. Um, so we'll come to that. But there's also one piece of, uh, of film of uh, a student at NYU who's Jewish talking about uh, their experience. Have a look at this. Being a Jew at NYU is walking to class and passing torn and defaced posters of innocent hostages with the words occupier and murderer written across their faces. Being a Jew at NYU is being surrounded by students and faculty who support the murder and kidnapping of Jews because after all, as they say, resistance is justified when people are occupied. It is being surrounded by social justice warriors and self-proclaimed feminists whose calls for justice end abruptly when the rape victims are Jews. Being a Jew at NYU has meant being physically assaulted in NYU's library by a fellow student while I was wearing an American Israeli flag and having my attacker still roam freely throughout the campus. I mean, that is an incredible statement because I um, lived in New York for nearly 10 years. I got married in New York. I know New York really well. And New York to me was a sort of a bit of an outpost of, of Israel. You know, I, I, <laughs> I used to say to people, you know, well, I lived in New York for 10 years, so I considered myself to be an honorary Jew. You know, right. I also was brought up in North London. You know, but to see New York changing to that extent where it's now actually a positive disadvantage and it may even be dangerous to declare yourself to be Jewish. It's extraordinary. Well, yeah, I mean, there are the demographic changes. So there are, as a percentage now, Muslims have surpassed right. Jews in the United States. So that's one thing right. that's going on. But of course, the other thing is is this, again, this, this marriage of the radical left, um, which is a largely white yeah. creature, and Islamist sentiment. Mm. Um, and so, so what you have is people who have been weaned on critical race theory on this idea of right. Colonial white settlers against oppressed colonized mm. minorities. Mm. Taking that uh, outlook, which is from the United States case of white settlers and indigenous uh, colonized people, and, and co copying and pasting that onto this very complicated yeah. multi layered conflict and saying, well, the Jews are the white settlers and the people of right. color who are being colonized are called the Palestinians, so we've got to right. attack the colonizer. Right. And that's the mentality that you find. Um, and, and again, the reason, some of the reason this is metastasized is because uh, the professoriate has become so dominant, so tilted. Yeah. It's gone from 
sort of three to one left to right in the social sciences in the United States in the 60s to about 12, 13 to one today. Right. Once you get a monoculture like that, the incentives are for people who exemplify the values of the community, so who are fundamentalist about those progressive left values. And so that's why we're, mm. I think, one of the underrated stories here is that monoculture is incubating yes. this radicalism. And I wonder if we just haven't been paying attention, but have a look. You spoke about this um, ridiculous reaction from some of the Ivy League um, school bosses when they were being questioned at a congressional committee. Dr. Kornbluth, yes. does M at MIT, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate MIT's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying and harassment, yes or no? If targeted at individuals, not making public statements. Ms. McGill, at Penn, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Penn's rules or code of conduct, yes or no? If the speech turns into conduct, it can be harassment. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Just unbelievable stuff. Um, Eric, thank you very much indeed. I mean, we're unfortunately we're out of time, but I'm sure we'll have you back because this ain't going anywhere. The story is going to be here for a long time to come. But let's cross over now to the Atlantic because uh, US President Joe Biden says that his motivation to run for a second term is because former President Donald Trump is making another bid for the White House. Biden told reporters we can't let him win when asked about Trump, um, who remains the Republican frontrunner, despite all of those ridiculous federal and state charges out there. Let's take a listen to what he had to say. Would you be running for president if Trump wasn't running? I, I expect so, but look, he, he is running and I, just, I have to run. Would you drop out if Trump runs out? No, not now. Not now. It doesn't get any better, does it? Uh, joining me now, though, is former aides of President Donald Trump, uh, the one and only Dr. Sebastian Gorka. Sebastian, welcome to the Independent Republic. Um, uh, uh, Sleepy Joe there, obviously blinded by the lights coming off the, uh, the, the press and TV cameras. Um, why is he suddenly piping up that he wants to stop Donald Trump? Well, it's a very good question, Mike. Greetings. Uh, it's because they're desperate. I don't know if you followed what happened at the weekend. Yeah. No less than four different periodicals, uh, the whole editorial board of the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic had a whole issue. And there was an article from Robert Kagan as well. It's as if the Central Committee gave out the talking points. And the talking points were thus. Um, Donald Trump's re-election by the American people would lead to a dictatorship. And we have to stop him to save democracy. Now, I'm not joking. If you don't believe me, look it up. I posted them on my uh, my web page, on my social media at Seb Gorker on Twitter, on, on Truth Social. So he, here's the logic. Bear with me, Mike. Yeah. The American people choosing to democratically re-elect President Trump is a threat to democracy. That's what these <laughs> lunatics are saying. And it's very dangerous language because the likes of Liz Cheney and others who detest President Trump are right now giving interviews calling him a fascist, a proto-Nazi and a Mussolini. That language, Mike, and it's not just me, it's Democrats like Alan Dershowitz, the yeah. renowned emeritus professor of law at Harvard, are saying this is preparing the groundwork for somebody to try and kill President Trump. Why? Because if he's a Nazi, if he's a dictator, well, surely that's what should happen. That's the fire that the left is playing with right now. 
Because they've obviously worked out that this myriad number of allegations and charges and indictments, which are in the 90s, I think now, um, are not really going anywhere, right? If you look at every single, he's now the president is now facing 730 years in prison, four sets <laughs> of indictments. Yeah, no, I mean you have to laugh. I mean, otherwise you're going to cry. Right. 91 indictments, uh, 91 charges in four separate baskets of indictments from Atlanta to New York. Uh, the various judges, lunatics like Engeron in New York, like Chutkan, Judge Chutkan. A federal judge in this stinking city, Washington, D.C., who's running the trial on January the 6th against President Trump, just happens to have been a partner in the same law firm for 12 years with Hunter Biden. Oh, really? President Biden. Yes, President Biden. It's just, it's a strange coincidence, isn't it? These people don't realize every time they bring up a specious, fallacious, transparently manufactured charge, what happens to to President Trump. President Trump is now up to 60 points ahead of any other challenger on the right, including Ron DeSantis, and he's beating right now, he's beating Biden in five of the six swing states. They know Biden can't beat him, so they've got to bang the drum of dictatorship. But look, most Americans see through this and they realize this is bunkum, Mike. Bunkum. Well, this is the trouble, isn't it? Because he is like one of those characters in a film. Um, the more they try and kill him, uh, the bigger he gets, <laughs> and the stronger he gets, and it's almost like yeah. they just don't know what to do anymore, and so they just have to get ridiculously stupid. Well, look, this is... I, I, I say that they are hostages to their own ideology and their hatred. If you're a patriot, whether you're a Brit, whether you're an American, you are fueled by love, love of country, love of tradition, love of God. These people, they don't believe in the country, they hate the country, yeah. they don't believe in God, and they hate themselves. And hate, Mike, you know, you've lived in America, hate only gets you so far. If you're a rabid leftist, this is why they... they, they Look at talk radio. Look at what you and I do, right? Yeah. For three hours a day, I've got a national show. You've got your amazing independent republic. The left, the left has tried time and again to take over talk radio. Yes. And they can't. They can't because you don't want to listen to somebody spew bile for three hours a day. Mm. That's who they are, Mike. No, and that's but of why. Course, and you're quite right because that's what they accuse us of doing. You know, uh, I'm apparently I had I had some maniac on uh, on Twitter the other day, uh, saying basically accusing me of causing all the problems in the country. I'm like, yeah, so so it's all my fault. I'll put my hands up. Well, we saw it today. Boris Johnson appearing in front of the COVID inquiry, and the COVID inquiry was entirely set up by Ramona's to basically give him a hard time and make out that everything was his fault. Don't blame China. You know, when one of the uh, government ministers tried to raise the subject of the Wuhan lab leak, which people have now. All, all, almost entirely accepted as the reason why it happened, despite the fact that they denied it when Donald Trump said it, suddenly um, they didn't want to talk about that. Oh, no, 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 that's not in the scope of the inquiry, they said. Let's not mention China because it must be all Boris Johnson's fault. We, we live, and this is you know worthy of several PhD dissertations, Mike, we, we live in the perversest of times in Western civilization, in the UK, in America, where the elite that run the country detest 
not only their own countries, yeah. but detest their civilization. Mm. That's the truth. And that's yes. why we need Nigel back. That's why we need my old boss, President Trump, back. Because guess what? I don't care about mean tweets or Nigel's you know, love of a, you know, a cigarette and, and a pint of beer. They love their country. Mm. Yeah. And that's what most Brits and Americans get. That guy, Trump, that guy, Farage, loves their country. And that's, look, if that's populism, Give me more populism. Well, I mean, it's only really in relatively recent times, isn't it, that the word popular is apparently a bad thing. You know, in my uh, estimation, being popular is actually a good thing. But for these bozos uh, who hate their country and hate anybody who loves the country, you know, for them, being popular is somehow a negative because they've been reading The Guardian for so long, uh, <laughs> they've got an abacus that's upside down, you know. But let's have a look at Donald Trump because he was speaking to Sean Hannity uh, a little earlier on uh, this week, in which uh, I think there was a bit of tongue-in-cheekery going on. Let's have a look. <laughs> have we got it? Have we got it? They want to call you a dictator. You use the words, I am your retribution. And now, before that, you said if you've been wronged and you used other words as well. But I want to be very, very clear on this. To be clear, do you in any way have any plans whatsoever, if re-elected president, to abuse power, to break the law, to use the government to go after people? You mean like they're using right now? Anybody. Except for day one. Yeah. Except what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Me? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's drill, not a, that's, drill. That's not... No, no. That's I mean, and the cheer goes up because, you know, everybody gets it. The people who get it's it... It's a joke! Yeah, of course. Joke, Mike. That, that, everybody in the, my, poor Sean, you know, wet his pants there, but everybody in the audience laughed, realized right. it was a joke. And you know what it's been like for the last 18 hours in America? It has been delicious. Just that 20-second clip has made the collective cranium of every libtard explode. Oh, my gosh, he is a dictator. Yeah. And what did he say? He said, yeah, I'll be a dictator because I'm going to close the border. Hmm, that's a great idea. Yeah. And I'm going to allow people to frack and bring us energy independence again. It's like somebody saying, okay, no more boat people across the yeah. channel, and we're going to have North Sea oil again. What a dictator, Mike. Yeah, but you, that's exactly what they would say here. They would be absolutely up in arms and be marching in the street, shouting free Palestine and get rid of Boris. I mean, that's what they'd be doing. But that's where we are. Listen, I know you've got to run, so I'm going to, I'm going to cut it short this week. But, Sam, good to see you. Uh, Sebastian, of course, Gorka, uh, former aide to Donald Trump. We'll see uh, whether he gets to be another aide to Donald Trump in the next uh, presidency. Uh, of course, it all kicks off uh, in the next year, and we'll be bringing you all of it right here uh, on Talk TV. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, but grab your phones and call me right now because I want to speak to you. 0344 499 1000. Calls will cost the national rate. And I'll also look at Labour's crazy proposal to make vapes prescription only. Speak to you after the break in a smoke. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. They haven't got it right much lately, but Time magazine have finally put their best foot forward and picked the person of the year. And that person turns out to be Taylor Swift. After all, uh, who but she could have become the biggest act on uh, the world stage, could boost TV audiences for NFL matches simply because she's dating a Kansas football player. Uh, Taylor Kelsey, who commands sellout stadium-style followings from Argentina to Manchester. Everything the 33-year-old queen of pop touches right now 
seems to turn to gold. She's a hero to millions of young women. This series is the perfect embodiment of feminism. She wins awards. She remains humble to her core. And she even finds time to continue her feud with Kim Kardashian and Kanye West. She's called them trash, and she's not wrong. The Swifties, who are the millions who follow her every move, can't get enough of her albums, her live shows, her T-shirts, and the fact that she's now set out on her own after re-recording all the hits that were ruthlessly controlled by a former record company owned, owned by Scooter Braun. He lost, she won. Even Piers Morgan asked tonight, is she the biggest pop star of all time? I think you might just be right. Now, I realise I might get slagged off for that later on, so we'll talk to the panel about it when we start back up looking at the front pages of the newspapers. But first, before we do that, lots of you have been getting in touch, so let's hear from James, who's in Bexley, wants to talk about the ULES situation. James, a very good <laughs> evening to you. What can I do for you? Evening, Mike. Uh, this evening, I live in Bexley, yes. and uh, the TFL have been putting more and more cameras up um, mm. all over the area, and right. the guys have been out cutting them down, uh, it, which I'm very grateful for. I haven't met anyone who actually has a bad word to say about the, the Blade, Blade Runners. Runners. Yeah, well, this this evening, um, it's all over social media in Willersley Avenue in Sidcup. Yeah. Um, there's a box has exploded, destroyed a van, damaged a... Uh, uh, someone's fence. Right. Uh, there's videos of the sparks. A friend of mine lives about three quarters of a mile away. I'm about a mile away. She heard the explosion. It's flown across the road and punched holes the size of your fist in the side of someone's van. Blimey. Someone, someone felled the pole with a camera on it, by the right. looks of things. And, it, and uh, there's, there's, there's pictures of huge showers of sparks and the box has flown across the road and struck right. someone's van. That's the first it's time damaging. anything like that's happened, isn't it? Uh, yeah, this is this is the biggest one. There's there's ambulances and police on the scene. It doesn't look like anyone was hurt, but they shut the road off. Wow. Um, so I mean, who knew these? Because I mean, when you normally when they cut them down or just disable them, there isn't any kind of you know fire or any kind of explosion at all, is there? No, not usually. It, it it's hard to say, but it, there's usually like a kiosk, a metal box where the joints. Right. Uh, electrical connections are made, and then it runs up a pole to the camera. Right. So the box has the high voltage, steps down to the low voltage, and that goes up to the cameras, I understand it. But something's happened this evening. No, no one's sure what, but there no. was, there's a god almighty shower of sparks, and the box has flown across the road. Someone's measured it at 4.3 yeah. metres. And there's shrap, shrapnel all over the road from it. Um, My goodness. Well, listen, thanks for letting us know. We'll check it out and we'll no see if problem. we can find out any more about it. But thank you uh, for telling us. Uh, let's go to John in West Lothian. He wants to talk about net migration. Hi, John. Good evening, Mike. Yes. What yeah, can I do? Uh, uh, yeah, there, there, obviously there's, there's two parts of uh, this immigration thing. One is the, the boats coming across the channel. Yes. Which is a very small proportion of the, the people of the 750,000 that uh, we keep hearing these figures about. Yeah. Now, that can be solved very easily by stopping the boat actually leaving France. So why don't, instead of giving French government 50 million quid and doing nothing, mm. we do it ourselves and we stop the boats from actually leaving France. Yes. And well, I think that's the best way to do it. Also, make it less um, sort of viable for them to get here, and when they do get here, uh, less viable for them to have all that they get given given to them. Yeah, but stop them actually leaving France, I think, yeah. is, is by far the biggest way. And, and that could be done quite legally, and, and we wouldn't be spending money in Rwanda and everywhere else. No. With regard to the others who are coming in, which is about 700,000 as opposed to the, the, the boat people, why don't we spend the money 
getting more civil servants, dealing with the applications. That is in our hands. We don't need anybody else to tell us what we can do. And get rid of them. Just yeah. actually stop it. You yeah. know, it's not, it's not rocket science, surely, in the mind of man, to get the people in to deal with these things, and there'll not be these 750,000 people coming in. Yes. You get them out of the country within hours of them, you know, attempting to... Yeah, no, I agree. It. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's ridiculous. You know, the idea that all these people are actually coming legally is a nonsense, absolutely mad. Um, but uh, just before we look at some of the other pages of the front page, the front pages and the other pages of the papers, how about this? Uh, we've asked you, uh, what was the government's worst mistake during COVID? Uh, Cameron says, sending COVID-positive elderly people back into the closed environment of care homes. That was just plain stupid. No other way to describe it. Kevin says, the hospitals were empty and many people lost everything due to being economic economically devastated, but not the pharmaceutical companies. This inquiry is a sham. And I think that's probably uh, fair to say. I don't think anybody sensible thinks this inquiry is doing any good whatsoever. Um, but let's talk about a few other stories. Another day of madness. Builders being bribed, XL bully breeders jumping through legal hoops, vegan diets putting pregnant women at risk. And get this, you might be able to get a prescription for vapes from your GP under a Keir Starmer government. Is there any method to his madness? I wouldn't bet on it. Um, back with me again in the Independent Republic, Megan, Madeline and Steve. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we've got quite a lot of stories to get stuck into, but I have to ask you first uh, whether I was right about Taylor Swift. <laughs> I mean, I think she's um, quite a phenomenon, really. I and, did not have you down as a Swifty, Mike, I must say. I mean, I'm not really a Swifty, to be honest. I'm far too old for that sort of thing. But, I mean, <laughs> um, I, I just quite admire her. She's yeah. done everything on her own. She hasn't taken any crap from the record producer who tried to do a sort of Britney Spears on her. She's re-recorded everything. Yeah. So I say good for her. She's a tycoon and super, yeah. she's not my kind of music, but she's right. super talented and mm. also has that Madonna-like ability to reinvent herself yeah. often. Yes. And she's quite, she seems anyway, from what I've read, to be quite sort of sensible. She's got her head ah, screwed but, on. But is she sensible, Mike? I know there's lots of cynical American conservatives reacting to this Time magazine oh, really? cover saying this is a Democrat operation. Oh, well, she's she's, gonna get out of the vote. Because they don't year. like her because she's what? Is she a Democrat? She's a Democrat. Is she? She's, she's very politically left wing. Okay. She is Absolutely. politically left wing, but she doesn't talk about it. I think right. that makes yeah. her. I've, never, I've literally never I mean, in I, this I, day and age in America, they have tried to make her talk about things. Mm. She's not engaged right. in it. And I've always admired that. She does the music, right. writes all her own songs, and just kind of keeps a private life. Yeah. See, I because I didn't know that. I had no idea that, that those were her politics. I just assumed being an American who likes to make a lot of money. Probably <laughs> votes Republicans she's, to keep the taxes down. She's the one billionaire that American leftists absolutely love. Right. Oh, well. And well that's, that's put a bit of a fly on my appointment. Never mind. Um, I still think she's all right. Let's talk about some of the stories uh, uh, that are knocking around, though, because we've been talking about the Boris Johnson reaction, and I know that um, you wouldn't be at all surprised to see the mirror kicking off with the dead can't hear your apologies. I just find this kind of I just find these kind of headlines really ghoulish and yeah. distasteful actually. Yeah. Because even though as many have acknowledged the government made some serious mistakes, I just think that this sort of actual blood on your hands narrative is you know it's not really it's not firstly I don't really believe that it's it's rooted right. in truth. It's very difficult to point to a particular politician right. and say he it was it's him he fault. killed yeah. my grandma. And no one ever stands outside the Chinese embassy saying Xi Jinping no. killed my grandma. Right. You know, it, I, I don't like this this particular sensationalism because you know there are people have to go into politics and make very difficult decisions, 
that decisions that, you know, I was often very critical of the government. I wouldn't have wanted to be making those no. decisions myself. No, exactly. And so did you think this kind of feeds in, though, to as well the, the, the kind of thing we've seen today, which is where relatives of those who did die want some kind of pound of flesh for their trouble. They want to turn up and, and be told something special. I don't know what it is that they want, and everybody feels sorry for anyone who lost members of their family, but you kind of... It just seems very un-British to me, somehow. Yeah, I, I agree. I, and it also suggests, I think, that it, it speaks to how the scope of the inquiry is so wide. You know, there's... there's The, the COVID bereaved ha are heard from in every module yeah. constantly, and they're, they're, they're physically often with placards and signs. And I think this makes the exercise more instantly confrontational, yeah. more emotional, and quite far from the kind of dispassionate analysis of yeah. events that would actually give us some useful findings yeah. that we might take forward to the next pandemic if, mm. when it happens. I think that's absolutely right. Um, what about this story about XL bullies, uh, Megan? Apparently they're all going to go to Scotland, which uh, I suppose if you live in England is great news, but not so much <laughs> if you live in Scotland. I mean, well, it's, it is great news because I do live in England. Um, but um, <laughs> now you'll get all the, the, you get all the <laughs> abuse from the SNP supporters. No, look, I I can see why they're moving to Scotland. Um, breeding puppies is a very lucrative business, exceptionally yeah. lucrative. And I mean, even with the ban coming into play. Um, the breeders haven't slowed down right. um, because it is worth so much money. But I think the conversation around this has, is always about, oh, all dogs bite or it's not about the dog, it's about the owner. Yeah. Um, but I think Scotland's got to get serious and they've got to act quick on right. this because, yes, all dogs do bite and, yes, you can train all dogs and it is often the owner's lack of responsibility, but these dogs are weapons. Yeah. They are weapons. And, all and it really sudden, is a recent thing, isn't it? Because you yeah. see them now. I mean, I just see them on the streets in, in wherever, wherever you go. And, you know, a couple of years ago, you never saw such a thing. It's yeah. terrible when all dogs bite, but when this dog, when a chihuahua does it, it's terrible. But when these dogs do it, it kills people. It kills grown men, yeah. let alone a child. And honestly, like... They they do flip. All vets have come out and say these dogs have a switch that yeah. will just go. Yeah. yeah, and they go for the... They literally go for the they jugular. They do they go, go for, for the throat, jugular. Yeah. You know, which is horrific. Um, Stephen, let's talk about uh, vapes. I don't know whether you're a vapor. Um, <laughs> I'm not a vapor. I used to be a smoker, but um, I don't understand what the Labour government's thinking, trying to prescribe something to people. I mean, why would you need a prescription to get a vape? You know, I need to get a vape because I'm anxious or, you know, I'm too fat, I don't want to eat so much. I mean, how are you going to get? How are you going to prescribe it? And what? I, th I think I'm the only member of the panel, other than you, Mike, <laughs> who, who isn't a vapor. Um, but I have to say, I think generally this is just part of the Labour government and the Tories as well, to yeah. be fair, making everyone's lives just a little bit more miserable. The nanny state interfering, yeah. and again, yeah. this idea that vapes need to be uh, prescribed by right. your doctor. Why can't you just go and have a bit of fun? Why can't you... I mean, you want to make a life choice... People will say, well, you, you don't know what's enough. in them, right? So in which case, they should either well, ban them. To do you both vape? Yeah, 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 we do. Okay. Um, do you know what you're doing? Do you know what you're smoking? I know it's a damn sight better than cigarettes, which I was mm. smoking before, yeah. and I feel very different physically. I okay. can run for much further than I used to be able to. OK. It's, it's very obvious that it, it is far superior right. from a health perspective. And I wonder, like... The NHS is quite backed up as it is. I wonder who West Streeting thinks is yeah. going to have time to prescribe. I mean, every time I go into a pharmacy, there's a bloody great queue 
at the pharmacist's <laughs> desk for people getting God knows what. Yeah. You know, so if you're trying to get some Nurofen Plus or something because you just want to keep them at home, you know, you just go out again. You don't bother. So, yeah. And also, like on what thing... grounds do you get a prescription for a vape? What also, is it... Uh... It's not actually as easy as a lot of people. If you are long-term sick or you have a long-term medication, it's, it's even sometimes just getting your repeat prescription from a doctor. Yeah. I have a long-term right. health condition that I need medication for, and sometimes just getting your repeat prescription is a nightmare. Right. Imagine, I'd just I'd just go back to smoking. I've given up yeah. on the NHS. If I try and call, I'd just go, yeah, I just yeah, go yeah. buy a pack of fags. Yeah. It, it, and it's this that is, hard. This is really bad. I, I mean, I, I, I don't think you need to be a behavioural economist to see how this could backfire massively right. you have someone who's because they vape they're very addicted to nicotine suddenly that's taken away from them yeah they can't get their vape widely available right. in the way that sometimes if you've run out of cigarettes you you want to go you just go down to the when i smoked it was the thing yeah. i did fear of but i let, would never want to run out of cigarettes exactly. it's like, let's, you know, let's say that your your prescription vape dies yeah you're stuck you can't get another one you're you, you know you're at a party or something and so you go and buy cigarettes right. obviously that would happen right yeah. or there Whoever might be drafted... a vape dealer that would somehow emerge because yeah. you know you you'd overrun your your week's prescription I, amount or something. and that's the thing whether black you've opened a real can of worms here steve yeah, did I, I mean, Here's the thing I don't understand. <laughs> Why is vaping seen as cool now? I don't understand. What's well, because it's cool if you're a teenager, I presume, as well. But, but I mean, I guess if they put it on prescription, they're going to try and stop kids from, from, from vaping, mm -hmm. are they? Yeah. Because your they say NHS if you're a smoker, vape. it's a good thing to do. Well, if already, you're not a smoker, it's not. They're already illegal for children. You know, if there's a problem with some shops selling 16-year-olds vapes mm. when they shouldn't, then clamp down on those right. shops. Don't start banning them from 18-year-olds who are actually legally adults. I've got some bad adults. news for them. There's some 16-year-olds doing a lot worse than vaping. Well, quite. You know. <laughs> yeah. Um, most of them in the car park where I park my car where they seem to have smoked an awful lot of weed. And it stinks. <laughs> yes. Um, but that's fine. But it's um, OK because loads of people in Labour also want to make that legal while they're, you know, clamping down. Well, this is what's happened in America. In California, <laughs> it's basically illegal to smoke a cigarette anywhere. But you can smoke <laughs> as much marijuana as you like. It's not a problem at all. <laughs> Unbelievable. I went to New York last weekend and it came out at Kennedy Airport. And you'd think you walked into a, a reggae festival. I was going, <laughs> me. And all these, these are ordinary people waiting for a cab into the city. You know, they weren't yeah, kind yeah. of, you know, down and outs or anything. Anyway, what the hell do I know? Let's talk about David Attenborough, because apparently as part of the BBC cutbacks, it may be that all of his shows are no longer going to be produced because they're too expensive. I, this is good for me, because uh, for a long time I've been accusing the BBC of trying to kill him, because um, they keep wheeling him out to do these shows, and he's, <laughs> well, I mean, he's 90-odd, isn't he, or something? I think he's great. I think more. his shows are brilliant. I think he's more... Well, except they're all called Something Planet. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm interested in the planet. I, I, like, I like animals. And I, you? I, you know, that's... that's you work for the Telegraph, sorry. No, sorry. Um, <laughs> no but the, my point is the more recent programmes, I don't know if anyone's ever watched the more recent ones, they're all about climate change. That's the obsessed thing. Yes. No longer an well, This is it. It's no longer... Footage. Yeah. But the last one they made, he was off in some godforsaken island off the coast of Wales that I didn't even know existed. But they actually took him there. You know how normally they send the crew and they don't mm. make him... But they made him go to this island. And people were like, you could have got bird flu, there's any birds on this island. And it was cold and it was wet and he was on this boat. And he's 97, as it turns 97. out. 97. He shouldn't be working, should he? I mean, they didn't tie him up and drag him there. Like, he's allowed to go if he wants to. <laughs> well, listen, my mother is Just 99 do... and I wouldn't I mean, be taking he... her on a boat across... He's the, very the passionate about it. And, I mean, everyone loves him. He is a national treasure treasure because he has devoted his whole life to You're this. far too nice for this show. The thing is, <laughs> I... paid, uh, the, it apparently costs about seven and a half million a go to, to make wow. these shows. And I don't think the BBC should be doing any of that. You know, leave that to the commercial operators. Let I'm Netflix sure. do it or let, you know, Amazon do it or something. Maybe. I mean, I think the BBC ought to be doing quite... I think often, like, 
intellectual educational things that are not being done by other broadcasters. Yes. That's part of their like rethink like remit. Fact checking. And I think if you start getting rid of David Attenborough, <laughs> that suggests that they're not going in the rethink direction. That we're going to get more like embarrassing bodies and uh, naked attractions. Yeah, I know I these see, are I channel see, shows. I'm, I'm, I see, I'm <laughs> but very, you see my point. Yeah, yeah, but I'm very fundamentalist about it. I don't think they should be doing any entertainment at all. I think they should do news and current affairs. Uh, and documentaries and that's it. I don't, I don't think, think they, they should, should do the news and current affairs. Well, they're not doing that very well, are they? I mean, you know, they, I see Mariana Springs got a book out about how she's always being trolled. But, you know, this is a woman oh, who, who's the verification expert for the BBC who lied in her own CV. And you kind of go, really? Is that the best of it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Pretty shocking mm -hmm. stuff. Anyway, uh, we've got many, many more stories to do. Um, and you're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, so do not uh, move a muscle. I've got a cracking story about the US climate envoy demonstrating his very own toxic gas emissions. And hot off the press, uh, I'll bring you the rest of the front pages as well. Let's talk to you. You're watching The Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. And now it's time for this. The World of Work. Now, it may have come to your notice that we've been witnessing one of the biggest and most expensive wastes of time in the history of mankind. Yes, that's right, the COP28 climate change extravaganza has been going for over a week now, and it's still uh, going on about epic and equal amounts of carbon and bullshit. I don't mind saying that. We've already had the gasps of horror uh, when the host of the entire Sharabang, Sultan Al-Jabbar, declared that there was no scientific evidence linking the phasing out of fossil fuel to cooling the planet, and that if it happened, it would take us all back into the caves. This week, we saw something altogether more shocking in the form of former US presidential candidate John Kerry. At the ripe old age of 79, he's now a US special presidential envoy for climate, and he's been making a few toxic emissions of his own in the midst of a rather odd rant about coal-fired power stations in the company of a couple of other climate change bigwigs. He confessed he was getting more and more militant about banning coal because, in his words, it's killing people on a daily basis. Regardless of how ridiculous that actually sounds, he then let out a fart as if to emphasise his point. And his fellow panellists were not impressed. Let's have a look. We should not measure progress on the climate crisis just by the degrees averted, but by the lives saved. I mean, that, that was it. I'm sorry. I mean, we're not going to do it again. Radio host Larry O'Connor said he let loose with flatulence on the international <laughs> stage, representing us, the United States of America. Well, maybe the elder statesman should cut down on his own greenhouse gases. And that is the world of work. <laughs> the world of work. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to make the COP28 any more ridiculous after the, you know, the guy that's running it says actually no scientific evidence for this rubbish. Um, and now we've got um, John Kerry farting uh, in an international <laughs> panel um, talking about coal fire. And he was actually <laughs> serious when he said coal fire power stations are killing people every day. Oh, fasting is no joke. Those cows and all that methane. They no. Have, they contribute a lot. To, I'm not even They do. It. Well, actually, they create more problems for the greenhouse gas brigade um, than all of the planes flying yeah. in the world, apparently. Yeah, so I don't know the exact numbers, but, uh, you know, fasting is no laughing matter. It really is not. <laughs> and we should not be uh, taking no. it as... Uh, very childish. We should take it very seriously. Yes, very seriously. Now, serious. the story of the night, it seems to me, is on the front page of The Sun. <laughs> uh, the Queen of Mean dates Queen's ex, and apparently Anne Robinson, this is, uh, who, of course, used to do The Weakest Link, is now hooked up with uh, the former army, retired, I should say, army brigadier, Andrew Parker Bowles. I mean... I don't know what you say after that. I just think I love... I just love unexpected couples. Yes. Who saw that coming? 
Also, well, this, I did. this has led to a really great. Okay, I, I don't. I think the, the Sun's front page is pretty good, but I think the the inset headline is fantastic. Andrew, you are the strongest link. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> that's proper like old school Sun yes. doing what it does. And they've managed to find a picture of the Queen and the Queen of Mean, which is rather clever yes. at the bottom of the left hand page. Uh, Camilla meets Anne Robinson at 2013 Bash. Um, also, the other thing I quite like. Uh, is that they've got exclusive on page one. It's Toff Love. Oh, very good. Which very is good. not bad, is <laughs> nice, it? Nice, nice work. Yes. I mean, <laughs> who knew that um, Anne Robinson would make the front page of The Sun for a, you know, a, a romantic endeavour, age 79? Also, they've it's apparently good, been, they've been doing it in... They've been dating in secret. Have they? Yeah. Why? Well, I wonder, you know, what have they got to hide? But perhaps it's a bit more exciting that way. A friend of the couple said, Andrew is one of the few people to get away with poking fun at her. <laughs> I see what they did there. <laughs> Steve, you're being very quiet on this story. Like, what's the view from the, you know... The Telegraph view. I, yeah. the, the problem is, I feel like I'm a bit too young to know too much about <laughs> uh, I saw Anne on the telly maybe when I was a lot younger. Well, Andrew Parker Bowles used to be married to Camilla, right? So he's yeah, the yeah. father of Tom Parker Bowles, who you probably know. Great, great man. He's yeah, a maybe. great guy. Yeah, we love him. Yeah, well, he's yeah. a good man. Yeah. Is he good? Tom Bowles. Yeah, very he's a good. fantastic, yeah. Love him. Is he not working with the Telegraph? Yeah, yeah, I think so. He, yeah. he writes for us pretty Yeah, he's like a yeah. restaurant critic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a gourmet chef. He's a sort of renaissance yeah, man when it comes to food. He's, Decent he's guy. He's top, yeah. 10 yeah. out of 10. And, then, and she, of course, was the originator of The Weakest Link. And I think she did the show in America as well. But it is kind of very much of its time because... Yeah. It's, n it's never good to ask colleagues how, what, what, how old they are because you feel like there's maybe a couple of years in it and it turns out to be something terrifying. Like, yes. they were they don't remember 9-11 or something. Yeah. It's all very oh, scary. Oh, God. Yeah, don't... I've met people like that. Never ask them. Um, I've, met, I've met people who've been on shows here who weren't even born when 9-11 happened. Oh, my Lord. Wow. You know, yeah. and you kind of go, right, OK. But that means that, that the, new, the Weakest Link would have been off air before you were born, so you wouldn't have had... Isn't this, it like, still going? Is it back? I thought it was still know. going. I thought I saw her, like that Rung, Runga, what's his name? Runga Nathan. Is he not? Oh, really? I meant, you know, I meant with Anne, the, the oh, yeah. OG lineup. Yeah, no, no, now they've got all sorts of. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, it was for me, it was like the, the grandma and granddad special. You have mm. 15 to 1 countdown, and then you have the weakest link. Yes. Classic. One for the one for the teenagers. Now uh, we were talking about the BBC earlier. Rod Little's got his column in the Sun today. Um, he's saying that the audience of the BBC may be falling off a cliff, but apparently they're going to get a new chairman. I didn't even know they were going to get a new chairman. Uh, but it's a guy called Samir Shah, who is a mate of uh, Rod Little's, which will upset all the lefties because they'll say, "Well, you, if you know Rod Little, uh, then clearly you must be a wrong." Um, but this guy apparently used to be um, in charge of the political department of the uh, of the BBC. And together, he says, with Tim Davey, he may just be able to set the bloated corporation on a rather better course. Um, I think I might remember Samir Shah when he used to work at Channel 4. Um, but who knew? I don't even know who the chairman of the BBC is at the moment. Do you? Anybody? It has changed recently, hasn't it? It was Robbie <laughs> Gibb at one point, wasn't it? Well, I think the government had a bit of trouble appointing um, yeah. uh, someone to the to the chairmanship. But Samir Shah's pretty good, I think. He's mm. pretty sound. Yeah. Now, I know the BBC at the moment is obsessed with race and everything right. is about Black Lives Matter and yes. making sure everything's diverse. Diversity. The interesting thing about Samir Shah is that he was on the government's race commission right. where he was in helping to investigate racism in Britain. This was Tony Soule's famous race commission. Yeah. And they, they issued their report that was very controversial to the left because what they said was not everything is about race. Actually, lots of the, 
uh, there are lots of different factors which may contribute to discrimination and different problems that people have, including, including class, right. where you grew up and your sex and other things. So I think he's pretty sensible. And if uh, I think he may be part of the solution to the BBC's um, sort of race obsession. Yeah. Well, the problem with the BBC's race obsession is that they've got plenty of people working there uh, from different ethnic minorities, but they're all basically the same individual. They're not actually, you know different classes of people. They haven't got any white working-class kids there. No, there's what no they diversity have got, of views. Yeah, but what they have got is a whole uh, lot of people who went to private school but who might not all be white. But it's kind of, you know, so it's, it's literally, yeah. it doesn't really matter what their skin colour is, but, but the diversity of views thing, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's why when things happen and go out on the BBC, they're all kind of looking at each other going, well, why is everybody surprised about this? Because isn't this what everybody thinks? And you, if, well, if, no, actually. If you watch a BBC programme or go on BBC News and look at all of the different faces that they might have, <laughs> whether it's the actors or whether it's just people in different news, uh, sort of online news articles, yeah. you would think that we live in a completely different country. Right. I think it's very much a London-focused thing because yeah. London right. is so diverse that therefore the BBC staff just expect the rest right. of the country to, to be the same as London. Right, but so, they tried to move to Manchester, didn't they? And, and all that happened really was that a lot of people used to get hired to get on a train to go to Manchester <laughs> to work for the yeah. day and then come back on the train uh, and nobody really moved there. Yeah, and actually the bias is, I think, sometimes hard for people in the BBC to detect mm. because they're speaking within a bubble and speaking to each other. There are just whole vo- viewpoints that it wouldn't even occur to them to commission right. or to frame something in that way. So, mm. for example, if you've commissioned, I don't know, a package on a new show about knife crime, for example, a conservative-minded person would probably say this has a lot to do with family breakdown right. and, um, you know, lack of structure and routine and this absent fathers, that yeah. kind of stuff. Right. But if you, think, if, you, if you don't have that worldview, it wouldn't occur to you, so you will frame it around the closure of a youth club or, you know, that this is just one example that I can think of. And I think it's really very subtle and actually quite hard to overcome because yeah. if you don't realise you're doing it, how do you stop it? Exactly, and you're yeah. surrounded by the same people and, and if you start moving away from that, they kind of yeah. look at you like you've gone insane or something, right? But from um, what, what Rod Little says, um, the, the new the new chairman, and I, rem- I had to look it it's up. It's Richard Sharp. Richard Sharp, yes. the, the, the Boris Lone Isn't man. he the guy? See, I yeah, thought yeah, he'd yeah. lost his job. But he but did. He's still he, there. He did a while. He hasn't been in, in, in situ for oh, a while, so there's been off. a kind of quite a bit of a, right. a, a, a sort of period in between. Mm. But he seems to hark back from a time, like many of us who still have some kind of fondness for the BBC, it's based on what we remember it being like yes. 20 years ago. And it sounds like he was very much active at yes. that time, so that's a good sign. So that is a yeah. good sign. How about this story in The Times? Um, this might end up being the last one we do. Uh, mm. it's, it's one of those great things. It's, it's about snacking Britons who have apparently lost their appetite for three square meals a day. But happily, it's written by Isabella Fish. <laughs> I was like that, you know? You have a name that kind of conjures up... Yeah, something I like that a lot. ..that you're writing about food, your name's so Fish. Funny. That's good, isn't it? I like that. Um, I don't know if it's true, though. Um, snacking Britain's losing their appetite. I mean, how many of you eat three square meals a day? Probably none of you, right? I do. Do you? Yeah. That's quite unusual. Yeah, I know. I remember going to um, Bosnia and they had three square meals. It was literally like, you know, the army camp there. This was during the war. And so they did breakfast. You had to cook breakfast. You'd turn up again for lunch and then you'd turn up. And it was really hot. And we were all eating yeah. like things like shepherd's pies. It was great. Really? Um, but I very rarely eat breakfast. would love that. <laughs> yeah, I very rarely eat breakfast. Um, and I sort of don't normally eat lunch, so my main meal of the day is kind of dinner. So yeah. you just have one meal a day? You don't snack at all? Not really. No, I try not to. You don't I mean, snack at all? No. One meal a day? I w- would not survive past 12. It depends how much I've eaten the day before. I mean, if I, also, if I eat late, I'm not very hungry in the morning. Yeah. I have a banana or something like that. But I'm not, I, I'm not one for... It sounds sort of, like you're a faster, Mike. 
No, well, I'm not very fast at all, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I should be a faster. You know, the reason I look like this is because of uh, all the very expensive meals that I've had out over the years. <laughs> all of the wine that I drink. It's got nothing to do well, with I, snacking. I always, I, sometimes I, I, if I'm on a diet and it's, I'm not getting out anywhere, I'm like, well, look, I have hardly eaten anything. And then I think, oh, yeah, those two bottles of wine. Yeah, that's it. Like, a thousand it. calories a time. I always Absolutely. tell myself that they don't count in the same no, way, no. but they totally no, do. No, they totally, they totally do. do. I well, I'm, I'm the proof of it. I never count. Quite right. Anyway, listen, that's enough snacking. <laughs> uh, we've got to go. Um, that was incredible. Great panel. Brilliant. Very funny. You've been watching Independent Republic uh, of Mike Graham. Thank you to everybody here, uh, to Megan, to Steve, uh, and, of course, uh, to Madeline as well. We'll see you tomorrow night, only on Talk TV. But by the lives saved. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm such a child. I couldn't stop laughing. It is funny, though. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.